0: This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal
1: roofing, all of incomparable quality. To everyone in our audience across 44 states, countries overseas, thank you for listening week after week and for making your valuable home among the top 10% of all podcasts. We have two big announcements to make.
0: Aha, the first one. Beginning the first Friday in January 2023 and continuing for five Fridays into February 2023 will serve up the podcast and YouTube series. That's YouTube as well. It's called The Coolest Neighborhoods in America. Enduring historically significant architectural style was the determining factor in the neighborhoods we chose to feature. First up, multiple neighborhoods in Philadelphia and surrounding areas that feature to this day prime examples of homes in the mid Century modern architectural genre. That podcast and YouTube release Friday, January sixth. Then on Friday, January thirteenth, we'll interview two longtime residents of Medford Lakes, a resort community of log homes turned year-round mecca on a series of lakes in the protected pinelands of New Jersey, and the coolest neighborhoods of America. Will continue through the first week in February with podcasts and accompanying YouTube videos. This is a first for us. Anybody's interested in architectural styles and just finding about these communities where the common denominator is a real sense of pride about the community. Then in early February, we'll celebrate our 100th podcast. Can you believe that, Kevin? Hundred podcast. Hundred podcast. I've actually watched you get older during this project. <laughs> and the beginning of our ninth year in broadcasting and podcasting with tons of ideas for our listeners from Kevin and Ron and frequent contributors to Your Valuable Home. Ideas to help our listeners make affordable home improvements as well as lots of ideas to enhance the value of their communities. Our 100th podcast celebration begins in early February. All About You, the listeners of Your Valuable Home.
1: Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. All right, Kev, we've got a uh, replay of a replay because we've talked about this before, right? Deb's gonna come on to talk about her experience with us and how everything turned out. So Deb, hey, thanks for coming on your Valuable Home Podcast and doing this.
3: Sure, I am beyond thrilled. You exceeded our expectations. We are so pleased with how everything turned out. You went above and beyond and we absolutely love our new kitchen and bathroom and closets and first floor layout.
1: What's your most like the exciting thing that you did, like something that really stands out right when you walk in the house?
3: Something that really stands out when you walk into to the kitchen is that you removed a bathroom, um, and a closet that we're separating my family room and my kitchen. So you knocked that all down and it overlooks um, the kitchen into the family room now, which is a big open floor space plan. And we absolutely love that. And that's definitely most noticeable when you walk in.
2: You
1: know, I'm not thinking about it when Ron, when you walk into our house, it's a center hole colonial type house. When you walk in, Mm -hmm. you basically, when you walk into the room, the bathroom was right there. So, you're no, walking seen, into the store. I've seen
0: toilet. center holes like that. I've seen center holes. So, I guess that. you're right. That's the way they were designed years ago, you know?
1: Pretty bad design. Right.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> what, what you did here, it sounds to me, is an owl design. A lot yes. of open space. Okay. Uh,
1: you walk right into a beautiful kitchen. Okay. It's all one big room from, from wall to wall. You're looking at about 60 feet from end to end now, as opposed to the, the breakup. Mm-hmm. So, the breakup's gone, and when you walk in, now they're mostly walking in through the garage. So, the whole concept was when you walk in through the garage, everything hits you from the kitchen. To the next room to where the the chimney was just redone so the brick chimney completely changed deb you want to talk about that
3: yes so we had a brick fireplace that we did not enjoy looking at it was very outdated looking and i didn't love the brick so we had uh, some quartz put over the existing brick um and had a new gas insert put in and i'm actually having a tv hung on top of it as we speak right now so it really just changes the whole look of what the family room was it was kind of dark and uh, just outdated and this really modernizes the home
1: one of the things you talked about being dark it's not dark now is it
3: no it is definitely (laughs) not dark at all we had a lot of build-ins that were uh, dark brown and we had a dark brown couch and we had a medium color brown uh, carpet in there so now we have light gray flooring, we have light gray walls, and the fireplace that was brick and dark is now um, a white uh, quartzite that has some gray lines running through it.
0: Yeah, so you, you made it, you, you got rid of the George Washington look, right? <laughs> yes, And you made exactly. it a very now look.
3: Yes, very modern transitional look, very bright, airy, very open. We love it.
1: It should be okay. bright. It's 37 recessed lights we put in there.
0: Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> it's all LEDs? All LEDs,
3: yeah.
1: All
0: LEDs, yeah.
1: It, Deb and I are on the same page about light. We we just like a lot of light. It's not that we overkill it with lighting, but you want that consistency because the room is absolutely gorgeous. And if you have areas where it's dark, it's going to look out of place. It's going to detract from, So it's yeah. consistent mm-hmm. flow from one end to the other, just being well lit. And that's the key of a lot yeah. of designs that if you want to save some money trying to do that, you have those dark spots and everybody starts complaining about it.
0: Well, you're going to love those LEDs when it's time comes time every month to look at your electric bill because they don't, they don't use a lot of power at all. No,
1: no, not these at all. Yeah. Yeah, so the backsplash, it's done now. And with the Provia Eris black window that we put in, how does that look?
3: It looks unbelievable. It is so sharp. I never thought it would look um, how amazing it actually looks. The tile, um, the window, the window complements the entire back wall that has my backsplash on it. It's a nice big picture window, um, super clear, just looks incredible.
1: I love to hear that. Yeah. yeah. That sounds interesting. That was her design. This is the first time I've ever done that. It was a black on black window. And I was looking forward to doing this. and it Black on black, inside and out. Right? Inside yeah. and out. Okay. And right. the, it just pops. As soon as you walk mm-hmm. in, they yeah, have. Sure. And right to the right of that is a, a patio door that we put in. The Provia patio door. And it just is unbelievable. So we're going to be selling a lot more of that. And it's all because Deb wanted to take a chance and do black on black. And it looks great. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said I wanted to get you on there to talk about uh, how does it look now that the, the product's finished.
3: Yes. And I, I feel that uh, more and more homes that are being built from ground up are using these black on black. And I wanted to be, in today's world, um, looking like a newer uh, model house than older. And I thought the black on black would really modernize it.
0: Well, yeah, if you ever sell, I don't know how inclined you are to do that, but if you ever sell, um, getting outside of this market that we're in right now, uh, people are gonna be looking for the now look, the today look. Right, yeah. yes.
1: Yeah, a lot of the, the exactly. houses today have those small rooms, and it's, it is. It's it's dark. It's basically where the house is built. And it's not that old of a house. I believe it was built in the 90s. So,
0: well, yeah, but they were building that
3: way then.
1: Well, it's a little different now. So now that we're done, is it a lot easier to function inside that kitchen than prior?
3: Absolutely. I had a square kitchen before. It had a very small island with a half wall separating our breakfast area and it was definitely a smaller feel, didn't have a ton of countertop space, and I think, what, did I triple my countertop space with the new design? It's just huge, it's a huge amount of space, countertop space, easy to get around, it's fabulous.
1: Yeah, and then we took the paddle room out, we moved out to the other part of the house, Now that that's done, is everything okay? Because then we were, when we were trying to build, so with us being on the job, it makes it a lot easier because if there were, when we were building it, we had worked with the homeowner saying, well, do you like this? And it was a little bit too small for their liking. So we had the availability to redo it because Dave and I are the one doing the work. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that right in the beginning, we were trying to get it to where you want it. Now that it's finished, is it exactly what you're looking for?
3: It is exactly what I, lo- I am looking for. I think the bathroom that we had originally planned was going to be very small. And this bathroom is probably double the size of what it was going to be. And it's just a powder room. But I needed to have a uh, handicapped accessibility into that space. So I mm-hmm. needed the doorway to be a certain width and have enough room to get inside. So, um, Kevin was able to come up with a different plan on the job, and we rearranged where the toilet and sink were going to go, and made sure we could have the opening at a certain width uh, so that it could all work out, and we could, you know, really have exactly what I was looking for.
0: Hmm.
3: And he okay. made that happen.
0: Yeah, the whole project sounds very, very appealing.
3: It really is. Mm-hmm. It's it's something special and unique for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things I always forget to do is take pictures prior. I mean, I knew this was going to be a great job.
3: I know. know. I have plenty of pictures. I have plenty of pictures prior. Perfect.
1: Yeah. What we got to do is definitely get some. Yes, prior to old to new, because people are going to be shocked to see the difference that what you designed and what came through, and then how you just love everything because it is. It's much more functional, but it's a new now look, and that new now look would be in that black on black window. That's the thing I love the most about it. I've never done it before. Uh, we've done black on white, but nothing black on the inside. And it really stands out when you see that as you walk in, with the, especially with the backsplash. Well, that you don't window
0: see pops. That in, I mean, if you visit a lot of people, you don't see that in too many houses anywhere. It's, yeah.
1: it's coming now. Black on white is normal. I've done a bunch of them over the past seven or eight years. But the black on black is something new. This is the first time I've ever done it. And I <laughs> you, she knew I was happy because I, I just kept saying, oh, this this That's, is unbelievable.
0: Like a cool look, especially if you got something inside that really makes it pop, you know? If, if it doesn't get sucked into the background, if it really pops. Yeah, yeah. well, there's
1: nothing in the kitchen mm. that doesn't say, wow, take a look at me. Yeah. As soon as you walk in from end to end, it's a wow factor the whole way through. So, Debbie, hey, thanks for coming on to talk about this. We got to post those pictures on uh, the social media, Your Valuable Home website, and uh, or the, the feeds there. And so people can see exactly what we're talking about and how great your new house looks.
3: Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay kev another really packed show today and we got a horror story that has to do with roofing again which is wow that's unusual <laughs> <laughs>
1: never heard of that. roofing windows probably yeah. most of the horror stories that we have are this but it it shows the show's working so i had one of our listeners it's probably about an hour away i i, I said listen i'm going to be in the area uh let me know when that roof is getting done and just tell them I'm just a friend. The big roof, small roof. What was it? Uh, nice, nice house. Mm-hmm. It was. It was definitely a. It was. It was a very nice house. And again, we don't do roofing, but I said, "Listen, I'm, I'm going to be in here. Do you mind if I just stop by and uh, while the roof is there ripping things out and just kind of go over some things just to make sure?" He goes, "I, I kind of got a good idea, but yeah, I think that'd be a great idea." So I actually showed up. It was around ten o'clock. Showed up this guy's house again. I didn't know the roofer. I didn't want to know the roofer. I just did it for the homeowner. So as I got there, everything was ripped. And you talk about a bomb hit. And they threw, everything's all over the place. The bushes are destroyed. There's roofing shingles everywhere. So they started putting the application. Yeah, of- when
0: those things come down, if they don't protect it with like sheets of plastic or something like that, I had it happen to me. And the roofing roofing company gave me a hard time. It stripped like, I had these beautiful azaleas, not azaleas, uh, rhododendrons up front. I you guess. had, you mean. Had, yeah. Stripped everything off them. They were like sticks, okay? So he said- well, what's wrong with them? They'll grow back again. I said, <laughs> I said, you know, I'm in my 70s. They may not grow back in my time. So you're going to pay for, to do this. He gave me a hard time. He said, you're going to pay to do it.
1: And he did. When I did roofing, here's why we had to get out of it. Number one, I knew the, the roofing industry was changing. So with the changing, I knew that I had to be out of the business because I wasn't working for three cents an hour back then. So what we did is I actually picked the roofing material up. I walked to the end of the roof and I threw it in the dumpster. Two reasons why I did that. Number one, it's better for the homeowner. Number two, there's nails. I know we got magnets, and there's a lot of technology that yeah, never that never works fully anyway. It took me a little bit more time because I did find wanna, it for months after that. You do, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, look, some roofs you can't; they're going to be unwalkable. I get it, I understand. But you've got to do something to protect the investment of the house, which means you can't throw the stuff down, destroy the side of the house, destroy the siding. This place was a bomb that hit it. But he said these guys were very reputable. And he did say to them that these are their guys, which means they're employees. Okay, well, that's very unusual. I probably doubt it, but let's just go there, and I'm just your friend, and we're going to talk a little bit more. And he said, I just want to make sure that Ice Shield gets installed properly. And I said, I get it. Now, for our listeners, if you're listening, say, Southern California, Texas, Arkansas, Florida, what I'm going to tell you is not really going to work. What I'm saying is from mid- You mean in terms of Ice Shield? Ice shield. Uh, we had problems in Texas a few years ago, uh, so it, most of the country is going to have these problems, so why not set up for the future? So sure. what we're doing is talking about pulling the gutters back, running the ice weather shield below the fascia, and continuing it onto the roof as GAF, because the GAF roofing shingle, and I said it's a phenomenal shingle you're that getting.
0: below the fascia. What do you mean is beneath the fascia, right?
1: So what you're looking at, when you see the top of the gutter, this ice shield is going to be apply to that fascia below the top of the gutter so if you have ice damming that's why i said it's not going to work really in florida because it's very rarely to get ice down in florida yeah they thought that in texas too and they got a lot of ice yeah so it can happen so what i'm telling you is you'll never have a problem this way because it's the best form of protection now gaf as a, as a certified contractor they tell you to put c3 it's a drip edge metal to put in the gutter mm-hmm. you and i routed a job and i was telling the homeowner this where we saw the drip edge get lifted and went right inside the house because it, it's a path for this ice shield to get in. Is it the best way? No, not for the ice shield. No, because not for the ice shield to get in. You mean for the for ice, ice to get, it, to get, the ice get into to get it. the house? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you do this, see, what I always tell people, listen, what I'm, what I'm telling you with the ice shield is not going to stop ice damming. It doesn't stop it. It just prevents it from coming into the house. Mm-hmm. You give ice a path that has a 2,000 PSI, which means if you had a piece of metal, it lifted the metal, went straight inside the house and caused damage. We've seen it. I've seen it throughout the years. That's why I decided years ago because I had it at my first house that I bought. And in 2004, when I put the addition on, I knew there was something wrong because we had ice damming coming in. So from there, I said, why don't I just do this? I'll bring the ice shield down. Now, I'm not saying I'm the one that invented it, but back in 2004, when I had a problem, I knew I had to do something different. It wasn't too hard to figure out. Builders today are doing it this way. But why don't we take it one step further to the residential part? That's most of the homes anyway. Let's pull the gutter back. Let's slide the ice shield down and let's do it right. So I said, hey, listen, while we're there, they're, they're installing the ice shield. So I talked to the, I guess he was their foreman of the job that I could speak with, and I said, hey, listen, I got a question for you. Why aren't you running the ice shield below the gutter? Because that's what stops the ice dam from coming up a problem. He goes, well, we have the metal up there. And I said, yeah, but the metal, it's sticking so far out. Like, let's go up there and we'll take a look. We literally got up on the roof and I put my hands under the metal. You can actually feel the plywood underneath. Mm-hmm. I said, if that ice, it's going to leak straight in or raise up, go inside the house. It's going to push its way into Not the only that, But it will
0: eventually rot the wood too, won't it?
1: Wood can get wet. Yeah. It's the length of time of how many times right. it's going to get wet. Right. Listen, this is a perfect storm. I'm not saying it's going to happen over time, but if you have ice dam coming in, why don't we do something that's going to protect your house? I call it the insurance policy. Yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more money, but you're not going to have a problem. So he's like, well, listen, I'm GAF certified. I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about the other things you're doing wrong. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's about a six 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 and a half pitch that you have there. Now, what that is, is I always tell people what a pitch is. It's a slope of the roof. Slope of the roof. Mm -hmm. Higher the number, higher the pitches, which Mm -hmm. means it's unwalkable. Mm -hmm. So he put one layer of ice shields. Now, what GF is requiring is that it's going to be, the way I'm going to explain this is they call it 20 inch vertical in. Now, what that means, if you're standing at your house, you're looking outside of a window in your outer wall, Mm -hmm. that inner part of the wall that you're looking at, the drywall, measure 20 inches inside there, put a level imagine you're sticking that level straight up through the roof infinity. And that point where it intersects up on the roof is probably going to be about four to five feet because they had about an 18 inch overhang right, right. before it meets that. So GF wants that ice shield up past that park because what ice damming is, is it freezes the gutter. It Ice works its way back up underneath the roofing shingles and or plywood. And then when it hits the heated part of the bearing wall, which is the inside of your home, it will start to melt and then work its way back down.
0: It well, actually rain in your house. That's what that happen in, in one of my houses years ago. Yeah,
1: there it is. Yeah. So I said, if you're doing it right, this is not even getting inside the envelope of the house. The ice shield you're putting down. GF does not want this because what the homeowner is going to do is you're going to blame the product. It's it's a he said he said she said thing kind of thing. Yeah. So you're yeah. not GF certified. You yeah. just paid fifty dollars for the class. I told him that that's all you are. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, we're one of the best around here. I said, Who told you you were the best? Mommy, Daddy. This is wrong. This is all wrong by GAF. Let's talk about another thing. He had a roofing elevation, which means you have two roofs and in between there's siding. Mm-hmm. So it was only about a couple feet. And I said, why don't you take the siding down? Flashing's in good shape, he told me. I said, the flashing, I see holes in the flashing. Can we look at the homeowner's contract? Because I'm his buddy. I want to I make sure it says flashing there. So the set flashing was to be replaced. I said, why aren't your guys ripping this out and replacing it? This roof, this GF roofing shingle is going to last him for 50 years. So if there's a problem, who's coming back to fix it? So what if it happens, say, in six or seven years, he has water that's coming in? You're going to rip the shingles out and try to match them up if they're going to redo it again? So why not do it right the first time? He's paying for it. Oh, this guy didn't like me at all. He really, really didn't like me. But I'm
0: surprised your tires haven't been slashed yet.
1: I parked far enough away. He had no clue it was me. I, I get it. Don't get upset with me because your subs are doing it wrong. And how do I know there were subs? Because I said to him, like, you, you might have take a look at their W-2 forms that I, I can see. Uh, he said, what are you talking about? You said, well, the homeowner, I said, told me that these are your employees. And I, I said to the homeowner, I said, what were some of the things? He said, well, they were on all the same shirts. So I said, well, that doesn't constitute <laughs> that there. And I said, that's a great line. I said, I won't mention your name because you want to mention his name. But I said, uh, yeah. think they got the same socks on, too. <laughs> oh, God. So this is what he said. And I said, well, listen. Uh, could you show me the workman's comp policy with the names that are on there? So, guys, let me see your driver's license so I can match up the workman's comp driver's policy. License. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting it. So now you understand my frustration. Oh, yeah.
0: No, I know. I got it. I got so it. So
1: everybody's about how can I sell you? They're not doing the job correctly. You're saying you're GAF certified. That's not GAF certified. And now if there's a problem, I said to the homeowner, I said, listen, if there is a problem, the contractor says it's the the product that's failing. I'm telling you, it's not. I guess you're going back to GAF and GF's going to go, well, how was it installed? Even though it's a GF certified contractor doing the work. <laughs> Let me ask you something. In all the years you've been doing this, how many years is it? 33 years I've 30, had my company.
0: 33 years, 33 years. How many times, and there's a, there's a dispute with a homeowner because of uh, you know, product satisfaction, whatever, how many times has it been the product and how many times has it been the installation of the product?
1: Ninety nine percent of my personal seeing has been the improper installation of the product.
0: Well, can we assume that that's probably the the way it goes out there? Yep. Well, here's what I I mean. Why would anybody else's experience be any different than yours? I mean, well, they're the ones having the problem. No, but I mean, generally, yep. Wouldn't is it a safe is is it a safe assumption to think that? A lot of the stuff, if it's 99% or 98% or whatever you say it is, that's that's the general rule of thumb. Correct. Something's going to go wrong, right? Yep. Okay.
1: Most of the time when I tell homeowners when we're talking about it, I said, hey, listen, the ones I've physically seen around this area, I said 99% of the roofs I've physically seen have been done wrong or could be done better. Do you want to bet? Now, a couple of roofers won't engage in conversations with me. No, of course not. But they'll say, well, we have the, what we call the minimum coverage. So GF re- requires you to put C3 half, It's a drip edge metal. So my question is, for 33 years, even though I have my roofer doing roofs, I don't put drip edge around. I've never had a problem ever in 33 years. We've done a lot of jobs because we're doing the siding, and I have them do an inch-and-a-half overhang, and I put my capping with a half-inch kick. So that's doing just as good of a job. Because if if rain's coming in at ninety miles an hour, I'm not worried about a little bit of water that can possibly get in. I'm gonna worry about my house blowing over or something ripping off the house mm-hmm. at ninety to one hundred and twenty sure, miles yeah. an hour. Mm-hmm. So these are the things I talk about. If you have the metal down, if look, if they require it, I think it's more placebo and cosmetic. We had GAF on talking about this. They require it. If, look, if you're going to warranty it, then that's what they're going to be doing. I've no problems against it, but there are ways to do it better. And we had them on talking about. It. And I, I remember having. Them. I said uh, Herb. Uh, is my way the best way of doing it? Yeah, it is. But we, as we all know, it's going to cost more money. But how much more are we talking to get a better job in the long run? Because the Every single
0: time, I would I would, I would, would go that way, spend the more money if I knew I was getting a better job. Well, how about Absolutely.
1: this? As a roofer, could you at least give the option to the homeowner? Hey, listen. You know, sure. I got something here. It's talking about the ice shield. If you never want to have a problem, it's going to cost this much more. If you want it, you want it. If you're not, we're still going to do the GF certification. And the product's great with GF. Those asphalt shingles, they're going to last you. I I get it. I understand it. But give the homeowner the opportunity to see if, hey, we have a great insurance policy here. If you go this route, you'll never have a problem. If not, we're going to do the minimal coverage. And if you have a problem, don't call me because I at least approached you with it and you have an opportunity time to do it. And if you don't do it, then you're going to have a problem. But the problem is you got to give the homeowners that chance to do it. And if you have step flesh and it's in the contract to replace it, please replace the step flashing. If there's holes in it, it's going to leak. Sure, absolutely. So these are some of the things uh, as a homeowner that I got to see and I helped the homeowner around here, but anybody in, across the country, if you're gonna be hiring somebody, again, take pictures. Take pictures of the exact job what you're doing and most likely it's the underlaying because most time shingles don't leak, it's the flashing, it's the ice shield improperly installed, that's gonna create the leak not the shingles. Okay.
0: Contractor Kevin Kennedy, ever vigilant out there in the field. You're doing a good job. I We're mean- trying. Dude, Calling out the bad guys. We've got, we've never done anything like this before. We got the first part of five part series, the coolest neighborhoods in America. We've been promoting this for weeks now on our show. Uh, and this one is on mid-century modern neighborhoods in Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. Do you ever knew? know there was that many mid-century modern homes in Philadelphia? Not at all. I did. And some of them are absolutely knocked out. Gorgeous, okay? So stick with us. Uh, we've got Craig Wakefield, who's a realtor in uh, the Philadelphia area, He's sold tons of these this type of home and it's a very very interesting seven if you're into mid-century modern you can't miss this
1: all right we'll be back after this break
0: kev is it hard for clients planning large exterior projects to visualize how the
1: colors and textures work together used to be especially when they mix products from different manufacturers Provia's new website and broad selection of exterior products make my job easy clients faces light up as they choose all the products needed to give their home's exterior a now look with Provia's product line and their amazing new website We use their visualizer right from my laptop.
0: Hey, the site is amazing. Provia makes color selection a breeze. The website has eight suggested exterior color schemes that can be applied to Provia products, or customers can choose shades from any palette to suit their own tastes. The design center tab must be a great tool for you in visualizing how all Provia
1: products work in harmony based on window and door
0: configuration, siding, stone, and metal roofing
1: color and style. It's brilliant. You can see how Provia products work together on a sample home or a photo of a client's own home. Then you save the work with the My Portfolio tab. The site even lets me take exterior measurements. The new Provia.com and an expansive line of exterior products deliver on Provia's mission,
0: which is to serve by caring for details in ways others won't.
1: For updating home exteriors, our listeners should go to Provia.com slash YVH first and visualize the possibilities. Hey Ron, it is time for the feature segment. I believe we are starting the first of the America's coolest neighborhoods in America. Correct? Yeah, we've
0: been promoting this for weeks now, and the reason is it's a big deal. This is uh, probably the most ambitious thing we've ever undertaken, and it covers spots in the whole country. We
1: did a lot of work on this. Oh yeah,
0: first one we're going to do here is in the coolest neighborhoods in America is Philadelphia and surrounding areas. I love the architectural genre that this represents in Philadelphia. Philadelphia's nearby suburbs are filled with many examples of mid-century modern. Super, super architectural style. And here to take us on a tour of some of the very cool mid-century neighborhoods and standalone mid-century homes in Philadelphia is Craig Wakefield. Craig was a dentist and he turned real estate pro. His passion is mid-century modern and modern homes. In fact, he lives in a magnificent example of mid-century homes surrounded by sweeping gardens that he designed. For one neighborhood in particular in this interview, Craig will be joined by Angel DLC an interior designer who is in the final stages of renovating her mid-century modern home. So we've got people who are living it and doing it at the same time. I want to remind our listeners to look for a video that depicts many of the homes we'll be discussing in this interview on the New Pod City YouTube channel beginning around about the time this releases. Craig, welcome to Your Valuable Home. Before we get into specific examples of mid-century modern architecture, can you give us Say a brief overview of how the genre developed in Philadelphia and some of the architects involved. Did mid-century architecture begin showing up in Philadelphia in the, the 1930s?
4: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I do think Philadelphia region is so fortunate to have so many really outstanding examples of modernism. Starting with the PSFS bank building, which is recognized as the world's first skyscraper in the international style. It was built in 1932 and designed by William Lascaz and George Howe. Howe and Lascaz also designed modern homes in the area during the time of construction. In 1933, Lascaz designed the Spreeder Studio for the graphic artist Roy Spreeder. Kenneth Day designed a few additional Bauhaus-inspired homes in the late 1930s in our region that are just exceptional. They really capture the look of early modernism.
0: Greg, for listeners who are not familiar with the Bauhaus movement, which I believe started in Germany, in Berlin, can you offer a brief definition of that?
4: The Bauhaus was an influential German art school that brought together principles of mass production and individual artistic expression. It had far-reaching influence on the modern movement worldwide. Buildings featured streamlined geometric shapes with almost no additional decorations. The influence from early European modernism can be seen so much of what was happening in the 40s and 50s in our region. There are large developments of mid-century style homes that were built to meet the great demand for housing after World War II, and there are also many unique international style mid-century modern homes that were designed by a number of outstanding architects. I really believe the mid-century homes of Philadelphia are special because of the use of local materials such as stone and the incredible wash settings that really strengthen the the indoor-outdoor connection. How
0: many mid- century and modern homes have you sold over the years
4: it's really been an amazing journey over the last 15 years to help have helped so many transactions of of really significant modern architecture in our region it's been such a privilege for me to meet so many original owners I'm looking for stewards for their homes and also, you know, meeting those who love the homes like I do and looking to buy them. I've been involved in many transactions with internationally recognized architects such as Richard Neutra and Louis Kahn, George Dobb and Aaron Mitchell. But also there have been some really great homes by architects that are more regionally, such as Arthur White, Frank Weiss, Montgomery and Bishop, Erwin Stein, Robert Brungerbig, just to name a few. So it's it's been great. There's really been a lot. The houses that were built on
0: the former Stotesbury estate.
4: Edward Stotesbury, who had worked with JP Morgan completed Stotesbury Manor in 1921, 300 acres just outside of Philadelphia. At the time, it was the third largest house in the United States. After Stotesbury's death, his wife sold 265 of the acres to Matthew McCloskey. He was a builder in concrete at the time, doing large large buildings and and stadium-type structures. He originally planned to build about 1,000 precast concrete homes. The homes in the development were designed by architects Silverman and Levy. After about 50 of the precast homes were built, starting in 1947, They found there were issues with water leakage and with the cement roofs. The remaining built over the next few years were built with cinder block and frame roof. The original 50 have the unique ceiling grid of the prefab concrete. In that neighborhood, I helped a buyer and seller uh, buy one of the homes. Uh, the previous owner had been known for his retail store, of mid-century furniture in Philadelphia. The one he had was enhanced by a carport that he kind of had this more of a streamlined look. I really think in the group of homes, you can see early European modernism and the, and the design.
0: Some of these were built in 47? Issues with uh, with water liquid drink? The
4: first ones were in 47, so the first 50 were the ones that were just prefab concrete pieces that were put together. And then the remaining hundreds were cinder block. He only did 50 of the poured cream concrete ones.
0: Beat Angel DLC. Angel's on the phone, and I believe she lives in one of those first 50, and she's in the process of finishing the renovations on that house. Angel, your house was one of the sample homes, wasn't it?
2: It was. It was built in 1947 and originally about 1,200 square feet. I've done some research, and it was originally owned by a couple who were both G.I.s from World War II. He was a captain. She was an Army nurse, I believe. And they lived in the neighborhood until they died in the 70s. So it was pretty interesting that they lived long lives and stayed in the neighborhood.
0: So what exactly are you doing or have you done to the house?
2: So the house originally was one of the smaller versions. There were three versions of houses being built, and mine was the model home for the smallest version, about 1,200 square feet. Three bedrooms. The kitchen was a Pullman kitchen, about 10 by 10. It had a 10 by 10 dining room. Living room was probably uh, 10 by 20, and then each bedroom went from about 20 by 10 or 15 by 20. In the 90s, I guess my former owner put on an addition to the back room. I've since opened up a lot of the walls. Because of the waffle slab ceiling structure, I was able to do that. I've got some experience in working in waffle slab construction in high-rise buildings in Philadelphia, so I knew how to uh, tackle that issue. But my kitchen and dining room are now one room, and my living room is opened up. There was a sitting room. I added a fireplace. And as Craig mentioned, the second phases of houses that were built with concrete block did include a fireplace. And the two-story version, which was phase two of the development, was also concrete block. And none of those houses have the waffle slab ceiling. So I'm very fortunate to have this. So I have basically fixed a lot of problems in the house with electrical issues. I've added a bathroom. I've renovated the bathroom. So I've taken it all the way down to the original structure in some of the rooms and got to see firsthand what the uh, prefab wall structure looked like and the pluses and minuses of living in a concrete home. So it's been very fun. But right now, you know, I'm finishing up the second bathroom and I've added more sliding glass doors out to a deck and it's sort of a tourist property, so I've had to build some large staircases out of timbers and concrete in order to uh, get to the lower portion of my property.
0: Yeah, it's an out, it's it's been, outstanding property. It's, out, it's it, been it a fun you,
2: experience.
0: It gives you a feeling being in the Hollywood Hills.
2: Yeah, with the exactly. With the
0: architecture and, and the way the, the property slopes.
2: And then recently I've been involved with some friends who have purchased properties in the neighborhood and helping them do some renovations as well. The uh, concrete panels were flatbed trucked into the site. The panels were erected within three hours. So it was a pretty interesting process back in 1947. And as Craig mentioned, Matthew McCluskey was the largest concrete company in the United States. So it was plentiful and it was something that he decided to do. And it was a very new practice in 1947, building houses out of prefab concrete.
0: What's it like to live in that neighborhood?
2: Well, I love it. It's a diverse neighborhood. Houses are not very close to each other. You know, there's a rule and a restriction of having 35 feet between houses. So that makes for a nice atmosphere of seclusion. My house is actually built in an area of the original estate where the groundskeepers and all the greenhouses Mm. were. So the trees are very, very old. In fact, one of my neighbors has an original cork tree on her property and um, it's really absolutely beautiful and I've never seen one before.
0: Thanks for sharing your story. Now we got to move on to a place called Greenbelt Knoll in the city's Pennypack Park section.
4: Greg? Yeah, it was a group of 18 modest mid-century houses set right on the edge of the park in a wooded section in northeast section of Philadelphia in 1956. Greenbelt Knoll is significant that it was the first racially integrated planned development in the city and really one of the first in the country. The lead architect for the project was Robert Bishop with the firm Montgomery and Bishop landscape architect was Margaret Duncan. The houses are, are really special. They've been preserved by people who really love them.
0: Isn't there a story behind the homes on Monk Road in Lower and near Philadelphia?
4: Yeah, the Dorns family who owned Campbell Soup had a large estate and they sectioned off the end of their lot down at the end of Monk Road of 15 lots. They started selling them in the the mid-50s with the agreement that a mid-century modern home had to be designed and built on it, which I, I think that's pretty rare that people buy the lots with the requirement that they build a mid-century. So it really was a, a great little collection of, of mid-centuries. And I've sold homes on that section of Monk Road by Ingebrigtsen and Erwin Stein, including the 1955 Eisenman residence. So they were kind of two to 3,000 square foot houses that were uniquely designed in a cluster.
0: Okay, mid-century architecture also found a home in the city's East Falls section, didn't it? We're moving to the other side of the city now, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of rare to have these clusters of mid-century homes, but there were two streets off of Schoolhouse Lane in East Falls that had a lot of mid-centuries built. The tract of land was originally owned by Alma Morani. She was a surgeon and a sculptor, and she had worked with a realtor to sell the lots between the, the mid-40s and, and 1960s. You know, the buyers ended up being you know, a lot of her friends. They were notable citizens, and a lot of them were really active in social and progressive causes. So maybe that's part of the reason, but about a third of the homes were built in international models. Modern style, which is I think a really high concentration of moderns together. You know, it was a group of people who kind of knew each other and knew that other ones were being built in the neighborhood. One example is the 1956 Pedestal House by Montgomery and Bishop. They're the same architects mentioned before that had been the designers of Greenbelt Knoll. The base of the house is made of poured concrete and it kind of extends out in all directions over a smaller base, giving the, the appearance of a pedestal. In the evening when the lights are on, the, the main floor really appears to kind of float above the ground. It's it's really cool. And the lower level you can actually see the exposed concrete ceiling I and mean, it was purposely exposed newcomb montgomery part of that firm also designed a modern house for himself a few doors down frank weiss who trained under walter Gropius at Harvard. Gropius was one of the main teachers at the Bauhaus after he'd come to Boston, taught at Harvard. He did about seven residences in our area, and one of them is in this cluster. It's called the Charles Oler House, and it was designed in 1953. The 1958 William Winkleman residence is also a few doors away and also designed by Montgomery and Bishop, and it's a really large house. It's about 6,000 square feet and has a really large, dramatic glass wall projecting out of the living room. So, I mean, there's really, it's an interesting collection of houses in that area.
0: Yeah. Well, there's another interesting collection of mid-century, too, in Sheltenham and nearby Abington area. That's your neck
4: of the woods, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I lived in a different part of town, but I moved there really for the house, for, for the architecture. And, and, you know, definitely a number of buyers who ended up in this neighborhood were looking for really significant architecture and, and moved here to this area for it. And it's, you know, the area is really full of some cutting edge examples of mid-century modern homes. And I've, I've had the good fortune in this area to work with a number of the original owners. And I found that a lot of the original owners were prominent Jewish families that seemed to be somewhat connected socially and they, they knew each other. Louis Kahn's first residential commission was the Ozer Residence, and it was designed in 1940. Another fine example is the 1947 George Dobb Design Belts Residence. Dobb had worked with Le on the PSFS Building and had been recognized as one of six American architects in the 1932 seminal show that kind of introduced the term international style. The, Be- the Belts Residence is one I restored and resold this this year. Amazingly, it still had its 1947 kitchen and bathrooms intact with their original counters and everything, and I restored it. With that in mind, and kept even some of the original owners' furniture was still there, so the people who bought have a really fine, you know, authentic example. Frank Weiss did a number of houses, the same Frank Weiss that we've mentioned in East Falls. There's one that's a light-colored brick house where the main floor is mostly glass and a really heavier second floor above it, so that at night, you, when you look at it, it looks like the second floor is just floating because the first floor kind of disappears. Mm. And he designed that for his brother in 1949. Mm. I also had the honor of working with the Shepherd family. Or the sale of their home, which was designed in 1950. It looks to me a little like the precursor for the house in the movie the Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, kind on stilts and kind of up in the air kind of overlooking the woods. My home is the Leibowitz residence. It was designed by Arthur White in 1949. Matthew Leibowitz was a nationally recognized graphic artist. His work was heavily influenced by the Distill movement and its use of primary colors. Uh, my home is mostly glass with a few large blocks of primary color in it. Uh, yeah, I'm also a, an avid gardener and had a lot of fun designing, installing extensive gardens around my house to kind of heighten the indoor-outdoor connection. I started with a slate and put in thousands of perennials. And I think that's really what made me love these houses in the first place. I was a a gardener. had a house that I couldn't really see my garden and and wanting to have a house that I could have a connection to my gardens really kind of introduced me to these houses and kind of began my love affair with mid-century houses. Well,
0: I'll tell you, I've seen pictures and we're going to put the pictures in the video. You did a magnificent job. Uh, The indoor-outdoor thing really comes off. It really does. I wish the house was mine, to tell you the truth. (laughs) And moving right along here, individually commissioned and designed homes in other parts of the region, there are plenty of them, aren't there?
4: Yeah, there's there's so many that I've kind of worked with over the years. I wish we could include all of them. It was an honor to represent the home that Airman Mitchell designed for his family in 1956. He was in partnership with Ronaldo Gergola and they did a lot of large buildings downtown and a lot of renowned buildings around the world, including Australia's Parliament building. And it was the family sold it about 10 years ago. so it was the, f- the first transfer. The the 1958 Hasrick residence was designed by you know, internationally known Richard Neutra, and it's really spectacular. It's a classic Neutra with large floor-to-ceiling glass sliding doors. Another house that we included is the Wax residence designed by Erwin Stein. He did three homes that had a kind of repeating diamond pattern in the roof, and this, that's one of them. Another one is actually on the at the end of Monk Road that we had talked about before, so they're kind of sp- spread out. Another favorite of mine is the Dower. Residence by Robert Von Gerbig. Um, it was completed in 1960, and it, it's it's really a stunning house. And when we sold it, it was the original family was still there, so all their furniture and, and art was still still in the house. Um, the entrance features a, a, a Jap- Japanese-style courtyard. So the primary rooms look into the courtyard and, you know, out to the outside of of the yard. It's a beautiful house. Another house I was it was great to work with was Louis Kahn's Escherich house. Escherich was the niece of the woodworker, Wharton Escherich. It's an example of Kahn's architecture where he was that he's really known for, where it kind of has a monumental feel. Although it's not necessarily large, this house is, is less than 2,000 square feet. But when you look at it, it has a real strong you know, substance, starting by the 60s, starting to be the period when modern architecture was going in, in different directions.
0: Neutra in particular, he designed homes all over the country. He didn't, he didn't do a lot in LA and in Palm Springs. Am I right about that?
4: Unfortunately, Khan did do a lot of designs for people all over. Really, there really aren't that many. There are a few in other areas. There are less than 10 in our region. You know, he did the Parliament Building in Bangladesh and he did the Salk Institute in California. So he's known for in the museums in in Texas. I mean, he's really known for for his works that are mostly commercial. He did not do as many residential buildings, though.
0: Mid-century modern, it doesn't have the steam behind it. Or maybe I'm wrong. Is there a reason for that?
4: I think that what may have changed more is the furniture. So I think there are waves and interest in the classic Saarinen pieces or the Eames chairs. And I think that kind of goes up and down in mm-hmm. time. I really fell in love with these in the early nineties and certainly, and I started in real estate in, you know, in the two thousands. And from that time, there are always way more people looking for them than there are available. I think that there are a lot of people who really do want unique designs. And I think the the world, you know, a lot of new new modern design is actually using some of the concepts of these mid-century houses. And so not so big, more connected to the outside, more open floor plans. I think the, the design style has not gone out of favor in any way and is as strong as ever. Um, so, but yeah, I think what you, you probably are right in that the design within reach kind of furniture, it kind of goes cycles in and out and people maybe are a little less interested in that.
0: No, I was referring to like new classic mid-century developments. You don't see that much of that, do you?
4: Well, it would be, it would be a development of new modern houses. So it's, It's expensive to build with a glass and other yeah. things. So I, I, I think they're now um, around the country and in Philadelphia, people are building beautiful modern homes with lots of glass. that kind of similar look to some of the mid centuries.
0: Yeah. You yeah. see a lot of it. I was in, out in Montana not too long ago in uh, Yellowstone and places like that. A lot of uh, actors and actresses live there. So they're untouchable by the average person, like 20, $30 million, but it's there. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of glass. You have a lot of glass and it's just, they're stunning.
4: Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, the, the cost is just so expensive now. So I think it's prohibitive that they really are very expensive.
0: From the first time I started to talk to you, it's easy to understand why mid-century modern uh, real estate is your passion. Please share with our listeners how they can contact you.
4: Definitely feel free to reach out to me, email me questions with any questions or, or thought on the Philadelphia Modern Houses. I'd be happy to just talk to them. I do have a lot of photos, more than we're sharing on my Instagram, at Modern Homes with an S, Philadelphia, all spilled out. So at Modern Homes, Philadelphia. Follow me, definitely. It's great. I've, I've put a lot on that, and that's been a lot of fun. I also have a website. I have a history of the, the houses in the area and, and ones that I'm selling more recently, and that's Modern Homes, Philadelphia. Dot com. So I'd, I'd love to have people reach out and ask questions.
0: I would advise everybody's listening to this, look for our video. And a lot of Craig's uh, stuff is in there. And Angel contributed pictures, uh, photos, images for that too. But go to that website. If you're in the mid-century modern architecture, it is there. Thank the both of you very, very much. We appreciate it. This was very, very interesting. Have a great 2023. Hey Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments, how did they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount, plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for your valuable home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for
1: details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship. The Provia way.
0: That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories.
1: If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price.